this is not all about uh, some expensive, uh, politically correct, uh, green act of, of bunny hugging. Bunny hugging? <laughs> bunny hugging. He said bunny hugging? Yes. Okay. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Is that like tree hugging I in this country? I something right. Sort of. Okay. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Nice bunnies. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Why does Boris Johnson hate bunnies? Bounce to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. Crazy week in Minnesota. Also coast to coast and around the globe on the internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Streaming planet-wide, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Bradcast. And I know the rule of thumb in successful talk radio is that you are supposed to outrage listeners however (laughs) possible. That, of course, is the key to success, to big ratings. As it turns out, we don't care about ratings or maybe even success. I don't know. (laughs) We care about informing listeners and telling the truth as best as we possibly can. And yes, maybe entertaining you a little bit along the way as our trick to uh, keep you with us as we hope to enlighten and inform as per our constitutionally mandated mission of informing the electorate. So with that in mind, uh, I don't know about you, Desi Doyen, but uh, I, for one, am still suffering from PTSD. That would be post-Trump stress disorder. Okay, yes, I am too. So uh, as we are not yet, e- we're not yet even 100 days out from his disastrous presidency. So frankly, anything that comes along that sort of eases all sorts of ongoing tensions, that cool the temperature in any way, that sounds just great to me. So to that end, uh, the week's guilty verdicts for uh, former Minnesota police officer Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd murder trial. That was obviously a huge relief to most Americans on the domestic front. And today we've got another potential easing of tensions on the international front as Russia, which had been building up more than 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, 
now appears to be readying to pull back from that buildup which had worried Ukraine and NATO and really the entire world about the possibility of a very serious increase in hostilities in that region. We're along and still ongoing war in the eastern region of Ukraine on the western border of Russia has already resulted in some 14,000 deaths uh, in this uh, conflict between NATO-backed Ukraine and Russian-backed separatists in what is known as the Donbass region uh, over the past six or seven years there, despite a series of ceasefires over those years. Well, now Russia says it will begin pulling thousands of troops back from the areas near the Ukrainian border starting on Friday, according to Bloomberg today, and a step that could calm strains with the West that have surged in recent weeks. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky welcomed the move, saying in a tweet, quote, the reduction of troops on our border proportionately reduces tension. That's good. Uh, Ukraine, he said, is always vigilant, yet welcomes any steps to decrease the military presence and de-escalate the situation in Donbass. Ukraine, he said, seeks peace, grateful to international partners for their support. Hashtag stronger together. Western officials say Russia moved as many as 100,000 troops, according to Bloomberg, though other estimates suggest as many as 120 or even 150,000 troops on the high end, as well as tanks, warplanes, other equipment to areas near the border with Ukraine in, uh, in uh, recent weeks. No matter the exact number, everyone seems to agree that it is the largest such buildup in years. The U.S. and the European allies called on the Kremlin to pull the forces back, but Moscow said it is free to deploy its military wherever needed on its territory, which is true. The Russian military buildup had raised fears of a renewal of the heavy fighting uh, that we saw in 2014. The Russian defense minister said the military units will return to their bases by uh, May 1. The goals of these surprise checks, as he said, were fulfilled completely. The forces showed their ability to reliably defend the country. This uh, he told commanders during a visit to Crimea on Thursday, announcing the end of the operation. He said the military activity of NATO in this region has significantly increased, according to a ministry press release. The head of the Council on Foreign and Defense Policy, which advises the Kremlin, said, uh, quote, Moscow thinks that it got its message across, whatever that message may be. He, they said uh, there's been some de-escalation and now the confrontation has returned to the political and diplomatic sphere, which is good. Bloomberg, however, notes that there was no immediate sign that the withdrawal would take place as announced and that Russia has changed plans for deployments on short notice in the past uh, adding to the uncertainty at this hour, the defense ministry said it would leave uh, the tanks and other equipment of one of the major units in the area near the border ahead of exercises that are currently planned for this fall. Amid that crisis, U.S. President Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin to appeal to the Russian leader to reduce tensions, offering the prospect of a summit meeting later this year, a gesture that was welcomed in Moscow. 
On Tuesday, German Chancellor Angela Merkel had called the situation extremely tense and very worrying. She and other Western leaders had repeatedly appealed to the Kremlin to de-escalate. Now it appears they are doing so. But on Wednesday, Putin had warned the West against crossing Russia's, quote, red line, though his spokesman on Thursday declined to specify where that line is with regards to Ukraine. Michael Kaufman, a senior research scientist at CNA, a uh, group based in Virginia, told NBC News, quote, I think Moscow believes that its message was delivered and this coercive demonstration served its purpose. The buildup took a month, so it will take weeks to withdraw these forces, and only then will we will there be greater clarity as to the number of units that they have selected to leave behind their composition and location. But uh, said Vladimir Frolov, a Moscow-based political analyst, quote, the immediate crisis is over for now. That is good news. It is indeed. I uh, hope it holds. Yeah, me too. Because uh, in uh, in his annual State of the Union address this week, President Putin said that Russia wanted good relations with the rest of the world and is behaving with, quote, utmost restraint, despite, quote, unfriendly actions toward Moscow. But if someone takes our good intentions as indifference or weakness and aims to fully burn or even detonate these bridges himself, he should know that Russia's response will be asymmetrical, swift, and tough, said Putin. The uh, crisis in Russia's relations with the West has triggered uh, that by that military uh, buildup, uh, also the detention of the reportedly seriously ailing opposition leader Alexei Navalny, uh, alleged election interference in the U.S. and other issues. All of that has led Washington to impose new sanctions on Moscow just last week. But ahead of those sanctions, President Biden suggested holding a face-to-face -face meeting with uh, Putin in the coming months. And in still more calming news, the Russian leader was uh, set to take part in Joe Biden's virtual two-day climate summit, which started on Thursday on Earth Day. So I didn't get to watch day one of this summit, but Desi Doyen waking up painfully early on the West Coast. What was it, about 5 a.m. or so <laughs> It today? started at 5 a.m. West Coast time, yes. So did Putin show up, Desiree? Yes, he did. And how about the Pope? Was the Pope there, too? Yes, the Pope made it as well. Papa? <laughs> Il Papa, yes, yeah? he did. All right. And you saw them all in a Zoom meeting on yes. your own computer? It was a world leader Zoom call. What That's you know? kind of cool. As AP reports today, President Biden convened leaders of the world's most powerful countries on on Thursday to try to spur global efforts against climate change, drawing commitments, in fact, from Chinese President Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin to cooperate on cutting emissions despite their own sharp rivalries with the United States. So see, even though they don't get along on many other things, they are cooperating when it comes to climate is is that a sign of how important this actually is to oh, the world? Oh yes, most definitely. Good. Uh, China and Russia both actually agree and re recognize that uh, their existence also depends on fighting climate change. Biden said, uh, speaking from a TV-style set that was set up for this virtual summit of 40 leaders, quote, meeting this moment is about more than preserving our planet. It's about providing a better future for all of us. 
He called it a moment of peril, but a moment of opportunity, adding that the signs are unmistakable, the science is undeniable, and the cost of action I'm sorry, the cost of inaction keeps mounting. Now, before I play this brief clip from Biden uh, that uh, Desi captured, I should note the night before the summit, uh, AP's climate reporter, Seth Borenstein. Yes. uh, He tweeted, (laughs) uh, quote, it won't rival Netflix for drama, but 40 world leaders will try to save the planet from ever worsening global warming in a two day climate summit live streamed for binge viewing. Now, I know you binge viewed much of day one. Uh, If it didn't rival Netflix for drama, how about comedy? I (laughs) I understand there was a glitch or two. Oh, there were several glitches. Yeah, unfortunately. And, you know, it was a Zoom call. So what do you expect? You know, you had world leaders like uh, Scott Morrison, the Mm -hmm. prime minister of Australia, forgetting to take himself off of mute. So he had to start over. You had Vladimir Putin, uh, president of Russia, who didn't hear his cue because there was an issue with uh, French President Macron's tape being played and it didn't play. And so he was just sitting there bored. (laughs) And so we got to see him until he actually got got the cue to begin. So... Uh, And, you know, unfortunately, Vice President Kamala Harris gave an excellent speech, but there were audio issues where her voice, her entire speech was echoed and doubled. Oh, really? Yeah, and and it actually continued through uh, President Biden's uh, first part of his speech as well. Which I'm going to play in a second, but just to check, there was was no unfortunate Jeffrey Tubin-like incidents, were there? No. Okay, good. That's... (laughs) Everyone Uh, was on their best behavior. (laughs) Okay, the poor Pope. Uh, Anyway, so you'll hear some of that glitching that Des mentions uh, right here in uh, the beginning of this clip from Joe Biden, where, uh, again, this was like for the first nine minutes or so of his speech. The first minute of of Kamala Harris and Ah. only the first few minutes of Biden's speech. All right. So, yes, there was this echo, but eventually it got worked out, as you can hear in this clip. Meeting this, meeting this moment is about more, is about than, more preserving than preserving our planet. Our planet. It's also, about, it's also providing about providing a better future for all of us. That's why, That's when, why people when people talk about, talk about climate, about climate I, think I think jobs. jobs. The signs are unmistakable. The science is undeniable. But the cost of inaction is, keeps mounting. The United States isn't waiting. We are resolving to take action. No nation can solve this crisis on our own, as I know you all fully understand. All of us, all of us, and particularly those of us who represent the world's largest economies, we have to step up. You know, those that do take action and make bold investments in their people and clean energy future will win the good jobs of tomorrow and make their economies more resilient and more competitive. So let's run that race, win more, win more sustainable future than we have now overcome the existential crisis of our times. We know just how critically important that is because scientists tell us that this is the decisive decade. This is the decade we must make decisions that will avoid the worst consequences of the climate crisis. So uh, that was Joe Biden on day one of the climate summit that he convened, uh, the virtual climate summit. And by the way, does so they fixed it when the president spoke, but Kamala spoke first, the vice yes. president spoke first, and nobody bothered to fix it for that whole nine minutes that she was talking? Who knows why they didn't? Oh, Maybe they didn't notice. So I don't know. So mean. <laughs> Biden's own new commitment, uh, time to the summit, is, as we discussed on our previous broadcast, to cut U.S. fossil fuel emissions by up to 52% by 2030. 
marking the return by the U.S. to global climate efforts after four years of withdrawal under President Donald Trump. So, you know, when we first started our Green News report, Desi, yeah. uh, and we'll have we'll have one later today. We'll have more on all of this a bit later. But back in uh, early 2009, I think, when we started Green News report. Yes. G- goals that discussed 2030 at that time seemed like forever into the future. Mm -hmm. None of us will be alive for that. Well, now, in fact, 2030 is just nine years away. And so this is a big deal to call for a 50 percent reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions in just nine years as it doubles the commitment made by Barack Obama under the uh, Paris Climate Agreement to cut just about, I think it was 25, 28 percent in that From 2005 levels, yes. This doubles that. AP, uh, so that's a big cut. For just nine years. Yes. That now that we can actually see 2030 uh, not far down the road. AP reports Biden's administration is sketching out a vision of a prosperous, clean energy U.S. where factories churn out cutting edge batteries for export, line workers relay an efficient national electric grid and cruise cap abandon oil and gas rigs and coal mines. I like that vision. Japan at the summit announced its own new 46 percent emissions reduction target. And South Korea said it would stop public financing of new coal-fired power plants. That is a big deal as well, no? Yes. China's Xi Jinping, whose country is the world's biggest emissions culprit, followed by the U.S., which actually has a much bigger uh, footprint uh, per capita, Uh, She spoke first among the other global leaders. Uh, He said that China would work with America in cutting emissions. He declared, uh, quote, to protect the environment is to protect productivity and to boost the environment is to boost productivity. It's as simple as that, she said. Putin made no mention of his feuding with Biden and said that Russia is genuinely interested in galvanizing international cooperation to look further for effective solutions to climate change as well as all other vital challenges. German Chancellor Angela Merkel was one of the many welcoming the U.S. back into the 2015 Paris Climate Accord after Trump pulled us out of it uh, while boosting oil and gas production and mocking the science underlying our climate emergency. Merkel said, I'm delighted to see that the U.S. is back because there can be no doubt about the world needing your contribution if we really want to fulfill our ambitious goals. That is true. None of this works if the U.S. does not get its act together. Gaston Alfonso Brown, the prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda. Is that am I uh-huh. saying it right? Yes. Uh, noted, quote, we are the least contributors to greenhouse gas emissions, but the most affected by climate change. He called for debt relief and more international assistance to recover from storms and the pandemic to prevent a flow of climate refugees. He, his people, he said, are, quote, teetering on the edge of despair. After the stream of solemn pledges on fighting climate change, the talk then turned to money. Developing countries were watching for firm financial moves from the U.S., which they say still owes $2 billion in aid for transitioning away from fossil fuels that President Obama had promised, but Trump did not pay. President Biden also delivered other new pledges, pledges saying that the U.S. would double 
climate funding help for less wealthy countries by 2024. That cost would be more than made up for, he said, when, quote, disasters and conflicts are avoided. Other speakers urged hefty taxes on climate damaging polluters and a slashing of government programs that amount to subsidies for oil, gas and coal all over the world. There were reportedly many other things discussed by many other attendees to the summit. And Desi, I know your eyes are bleary still from watching (laughs) on your computer all morning, but what should we know from day one of this historic summit uh, in addition to or below some of those top lines I just ran through? Well, one of those top lines was uh, Prime Minister of the the UK, Boris Johnson. Uh, Here's his full comment about how the uh, innovation in clean energy has helped the British economy. Bunny hugging. This is not all about uh, some expensive, uh, politically correct uh, green act of, of bunny hugging, uh, or, or, or however you want to put it. I'm not even wrong with bunny hugging, but I, you, you know <laughs> what I'm driving at, uh, friends and colleagues. This is about growth and jobs. So there you go. Not <laughs> bunny hugging as much as growth and jobs. Good to know. I'll I'll not hug the bunnies. Yes. And on, on the economic aspects of it, uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen focused on the uh, economic aspects of innovation. And she says that the European Union is expanding and strengthening their carbon emissions trading market. And they're going to add transportation and buildings to that carbon trading market. And the EU is also developing a carbon border tax that would literally be a tax on imports from nations that don't cut their emissions mm. so that uh, European manufacturers are not disadvantaged so from higher carbon prices. If we don't cut our emissions here in the U.S., we get a tariff placed onto our products when they are exported to to the EU. Exactly. Here's, uh, here's uh, EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. This will be the make or break decade for our climate We are getting dangerously close to one and a half degrees of global warming. Science tells us it's not too late yet, but we must hurry up. We will make emission trading work not only for energy generation and industry, but also for transport and for buildings. Carbon must have its price because nature cannot pay the price any longer. Climate action is also a massive opportunity for our economies. It creates new markets, it mobilizes investment in new and transforming industries, and it unleashes innovation for a healthier and more prosperous future. The fight against climate change will be the engine for our global recovery. And it will be our compass for cooperation with all of you in many areas. Thank you again, President Biden, for this meeting. It is so good to have the U.S. back on our side in the fight against climate change. Together we can go faster and get further, and together we will win the future. Thanks a lot. No, thank you. And we are glad to be back on your side. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Also, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said uh, she noted that her country instituted a carbon price on carbon pollution a while ago, and it has led to a boom in innovation. So there are... You mean it hasn't wiped out their economy and they're all not freezing to death? (laughs) No, New Zealand's doing really well right now. imagine that. Yeah. So um, developing nations, as you mentioned, they focused on the impacts of climate change, how they're not responsible for causing it and how they desperately, desperately need 
help from rich countries. So for example, a factor to remember here is that trees absorb carbon emissions, but right now trees are worth more dead than alive. Mm. So the president of Gabon, Ali Amdimba, uh, his country is on the east coast of Africa. He was noting that it's 88% forest cover. His country absorbs more than it emits and that, you know, developing nations forests could be really instrumental in removing carbon from the atmosphere, but rich countries would need to help pay them to not cut down their forests. Mm -hmm. So that would be like an off, uh, a carbon offset regime or something like that. So he also noted that uh, poor countries did not create this problem. We live in a climate democracy and no individual country can escape the catastrophic results of our collective actions. Africa only contributes a fraction of global emissions, but we are the continent which is paying the biggest price. It is therefore crucial that climate finance, including climate debt swaps, be used to bring equity to the costs of adaptation in Africa. We are on course for disaster. It is our collective responsibility to act immediately and at an unprecedented global scale to limit the climate change crisis. There is no time to lose. I thank you. And then uh, the youth climate movement was represented by uh, Shia Bastida. She's of the Fridays for Future movement that was started by Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg. Uh, Bastida is from the indigenous Toltec tribe of Mexico, and she did not mince words in bluntly addressing these world leaders. I come to this summit knowing that I cannot possibly communicate all of the youth voices that should be here. I did not want to stand here and read our concerns and demands because if you had been listening, you would know what they are. Nevertheless, I think that it is important for all of us to be on the same page from now and moving forward. The climate crisis is the result of those perpetuating and upholding the harmful systems of colonialism, oppression, capitalism, and market-oriented greenwash solutions. Solutions must be aligned with the fact that climate justice is social justice. We can no longer keep having summits and conversations around what needs to change because we already have all of the solutions that we need. The fossil fuel industry and the systems that uphold the climate crisis rely on the existence of sacrifice zones. And these sacrifice zones have been intentionally picked to target the global south and black and brown communities in the global north. We demand that you stop any new fossil fuel infrastructure and existing fossil fuel extraction, including pipelines we demand that you stop systematically targeting the global south and black and brown and indigenous communities through environmental plunder, the exploitation of our lands and neoliberal policies. We demand to get to net zero emissions by 2030, not net zero by 2050, including concrete plans regarding how to get there by annual binding carbon budgets. You will often tell us again and again that we are being unrealistic and unreasonable but who is being unrealistic and unreasonable with unambitious, non-bold so-called solutions? You are the ones creating and finding loopholes in your own legislations, resolutions, policies, and agreements. 
you are the naive ones if you think we can survive this crisis in the current way of living. It's time for all of us to rise together and recognize that the climate crisis is not only the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced, but it is also the biggest opportunity that we have to change the world. And again, that was uh, Shia Bastida of the youth climate movement Fridays for Future in Mexico. Wow, good stuff there, saying yeah. that uh, net zero by 2050 is not by enough. 20, yeah, exactly. It's got to be by 2030. And she's got a point there. That's going to be really hard to make, though, but at least she is saying, hey, we need to pay attention to this better target. Glad there are people like her pushing these world leaders farther. <laughs> yes every day. Uh, All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Des. The summit uh, continues day two on Friday. Yes. Are you waking up at uh, 5 a.m. again? I would like to. (laughs) It's fascinating stuff. And uh, Friday's summit will include the cabinet secretaries from the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, the EPA, talking about innovation and, uh, and how we actually put these targets into action. I will look forward to that. Until then, we got to take a quick break here. Come back with, uh, well, I was going to say back home to D.C., but this all emanated out of D.C. in the first place. (laughs) But at least back to the January 6th insurrection and a few questions. Well, actually, a lot of questions that I still have about it. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Is that our house? <laughs> yes, it is. I see what you're doing there. The, <laughs> the Capitol building is sort of our house. Yeah. Although these guys are Australian, aren't they? I think so. Oh, man, you're totally... I'm, I'm firing you again <laughs> after the show. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, according to ABC News Today, has agreed to allow both Democrats and Republicans equal subpoena power and has conceded to an even partisan split on a 9-11-style commission that would investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. So uh, that's right. We still have no actual overreaching commission that is looking into this, uh, even though we're more than 100 days out from this attack. That's a combination from uh, Nancy Pelosi after her initial plan for a bipartisan commission Uh, more controlled by Democrats, was rejected by Republicans and appears to have uh, the entire idea feels like it has lost steam in recent weeks. The other reason that such a commission has had trouble getting off the ground is that Republicans are insisting that any commission to examine the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol must also look at violence during protests last year following the murder of George Floyd. That's ridiculous. It had nothing to do with January 6th, which is what the commission is supposed to be about. 
Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell addressed the commission idea during a news conference on Tuesday, saying the commission, quote, needs to be balanced and its scope broader than just January the 6th. Well, it sounds like Pelosi has met him on the balanced part, if not the other so far. In any event, more than 100 days out from the largest and most violent attack on the U.S. Capitol in 200 years without an overarching single commission to look at everything and, and pull all, all of the more narrow and, and the targeted investigations, uh, the criminal probes, the various inspector general reports, the sort of uh, almost random House and Senate committees that have been looking at various specific aspects of all of this. It's kind of a jumble and a mess that we're all sort of left trying to make sense of because there's no one you know, group sort of pulling all of these investigations together. And there is a lot that we still do not know that has frankly been nagging at me for the past week or so. Last week, you'll remember, there was... Um, an inspector general report, uh, one in a series of, of sort of flash reports that the Capitol Police IG has been releasing in recent weeks. His uh, his second was released last week. There's supposed to be a third coming in, in the future. But that second report noted, as we reported at the time, that both DHS and the FBI knew and, in fact, informed the leadership of the Capitol Police days before the attack that, quote, the Capitol is the target. That would be the target of the MAGA mob that was descending on Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And that uh, conversations in social media had discussed, quote, war and the need to, quote, get violent. That day, there was also information posted to social media of maps of underground tunnels at the Capitol and more. So the signs were very clear, even if they were for some reason ignored, as the IG found Capitol Police leadership were warned. Actually, they warned to not use their most aggressive riot defenses. They told officers not to do so, like not to use flashbang grenades. And rank and file officers were then sent out to face these this angry mob with without hardened riot gear, etc. If DHS and FBI knew about these warnings clearly, then it's safe to say that the president of the United States at that time, that would have been Donald Trump, who was busy riling up this very same crowd with lies that the election had been stolen from him. It's clear it's it's clear that he would have known about these warnings as well, because they were, you know, all the way up to DHS and the FBI. And it was about an attack at the U.S. Capitol. All of which raises questions about what actions his administration did or did not take to keep the Capitol protected and why Capitol Police essentially gave a stand down order when it came to using the most aggressive tactics for defending the U.S. Capitol during a joint session of Congress to ratify the Electoral College votes of the 2020 election. So there was uh, after that report, there was a somewhat related investigative uh, report that came out from Washington Post the very next day. 
after the IG report was first reported on by the New York Times. Uh, I wanted to get to this Washington Post report, but I ran out of time last week. But it sort of adds to some of these questions. In a reconstruction video of what happened on January 6th that the Washington Post put together, they found that there were 17 different requests for backup over 78 minutes at the peak of the attack that were seemingly ignored. For example, they cite at 1.13 p.m. on Jan- January 6th, a D.C. police commander facing a swelling crowd of protesters on the west side of the U.S. Capitol made an urgent call for more officers in riot gear. Quote, hard gear at the Capitol, hard gear at the Capitol. Commander Robert Glover shouted into his radio. Glover and a team of D.C. police officers had rushed to the besieged complex moments earlier at the behest of Capitol Police. By the time they arrived, the Capitol grounds were already being overrun by a mob intent on overturning Donald Trump's electoral defeat. And then over the next 78 minutes, Glover requested backup at least 17 times, according to the Post analysis. And the mob all this time on the west side of the Capitol eventually grew to at least 9,400 people outnumbering officers by more than 58 to 1. Wow, 9,400? And and nobody was responding. Elsewhere, the Post reports, rioters were then getting behind police lines on the west side by attacking their flanks on the south and the north. Rioters overtook the scaffolding to the north of the inaugural stage that was set up at the time, gaining access to an upper terrace where they eventually broke a window on the west side of the building. The uh, Glover requested uh, more help. He said, I need a command official from Capitol so we can coordinate where they want us to pull back to. We cannot hold we cannot hold this without more munitions or manpower, he urged. No response to his request for a fallback position is heard on any of the audio recordings. Less than 10 minutes later, video shows the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department team was forced from the upper terrace by the mob. So why was there no response or backup forthcoming? Those remain among the many questions that still remain unanswered about the Trump-fueled attack on the U.S. Capitol. Again, the worst in 200 years, resulting in the deaths of five individuals, including a Capitol police officer, followed by two others that took their own lives in the days that followed. And this was a damned serious attack that nobody was responding to. On Wednesday night, in a completely different context this week, Rachel Maddow reported on a federal appeals court ruling this week to send one of the insurrectionists back to jail after he had almost inexplicably been freed on bond pending a trial. She was citing this particular story as part of coverage uh, of a different story of uh, coverage of pushbacks from the right in response to outrage over the continuing series of killings by police that have happened even after this week's guilty verdict for uh, former Minneapolis uh, police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George George Floyd. But I wanted to play her report to give you an idea of just how serious this attack on police officers at the U.S. Capitol 
police officers who Republicans claim to defend all the time, how serious this actually was. Remember, about 140 officers were injured, many of them hospitalized with serious injuries from the attack that day, even as Republicans even now continue to slow walk this much needed overarching investigation that pulls together all of these threads from whatever happened on January 6. What about that idea of threat to police? Today in Washington, D.C., a federal judge revoked the ordered release uh, of one of the January 6th defendants. In his ruling, Judge Emmett Sullivan summarized what the defendant is accused of having done on, on January 6th. This is how he summarized it. Quote, as Officer A.W. lay on the ground, Mr. Witten began striking at the group of officers with a metal crutch. As D.C. police officers attempted to defend themselves against the members of the mob who were converging on them with various weapons, Mr. Witten climbed over a railing, kicked at Officer A.W. while standing over top of him, grabbed a different officer, Officer B.M., by the head and helmet, pulled him over Officer A.W. and dragged him face first down the U.S. Capitol steps into the violent mob. Approximately 20 minutes after those attacks on officers A.W. and B.M., Mr. Witten allegedly engaged in another round of assaults against D.C. police officers. Per prosecutors, body-worn camera footage and U.S. Capitol surveillance footage confirm that at around 4.48 p.m., Mr. Witten walked up to a police line. He was confronted by a protester who told him and others to stop. Mr. Witten retreated, but then he ran back to the line of officers, kicked them, and yelled, you're going to die tonight. Now that is a threat to police officers. That text is from a court ruling ordering that man to be jailed today. Because even though those are the allegations against him, that's what he was arrested for allegedly doing at the U.S. Capitol. The day after he was arrested, he was ordered released from jail. He is facing multiple felony charges, including assaulting a police officer with a dangerous weapon, which means he's up for a 20-year prison sentence on just that one charge. There is body camera footage and, and, and surveillance camera footage supporting prosecutors' charges about this. He's also talked publicly about his participation in these assaults, expressing, among other things, no remorse. But boy, did he, get, did he not get shot in the course of doing any of that. That was not a risk for him. After what prosecutors say he did on January 6th, participating in those multiple attacks on police officers, including dragging one down the stairs, face down, face first, to throw him to a mop, hitting another one with a weapon with a metal crutch, telling police officers they were going to die that day. After prosecutors say he did those things that day, what happened to him that day? He went home. He was only arrested a few weeks later. Did one day in jail before a judge in Georgia or judge in Georgia ordered that he should be released? Only now, weeks after his initial arrest, did this federal judge in D.C. look at his case and say, basically, my God, how is it that a judge in Georgia ordered that this guy should be let out of prison? Yeah. How is that? How is that? And the fact that uh, these folks were seemingly not concerned at all that they would be shot and killed. Now, she was reporting this story sort of in the context of uh, all of these uh, various uh, killings by police, of 
of uh, you know black motorists and George Floyd and so forth. Uh, and Republicans complaining about the guilty verdict against Derek Chauvin. But, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, black people go through every day. Uh, even when they have done nothing wrong, they're worried when they get pulled over by a cop that they might end up being shot by that cop. But not so at the Capitol. This was a very serious attack on our Capitol during one of its most solemn constitutional moments, the ratification of a new president. And if it helps, and it certainly should, given Republican claims that they are so concerned about law and order and such big supporters of law enforcement officials, in this case, you know, the law enforcement officials that they actually work with every day, well, you would think that they, as much as anyone, would want to get to the bottom of whatever happened on January 6th. But it sure does not seem like they have any interest in doing so, despite all of the still outstanding questions about what happened. Why weren't the Capitol Police properly prepared for the attack? Why were they given orders to not use their most important and aggressive tactics for pr protecting the U.S. Capitol both before and then during the attack itself? Who was telling them to stand down? In separate reports, we, we already learned that the National Guard was delayed for hours before they were deployed to help, even though they were suited up and standing by and ready to go. But they were specifically instructed by the Pentagon to not deploy without special permission from top brass. Why did that happen? Who ordered the Pentagon, which is overseen, by the way, by the commander in chief, who ordered the Pentagon to take those unusual measure, measures. And then yesterday, we learned this. A Capitol Police off, uh, official radioed units outside of the building on the morning of January 6th and told them only to scout for anti-Trump troublemakers, not pro-Trump protesters. That, according to Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, who described what she said were details of another internal investigation conducted in the aftermath of the mob attack, according to Politico. Lofgren revealed that, uh, the, the finding while she was questioning Capitol Police Inspector General Michael Bolton. No, not that Michael Bolton. <laughs> um, he appeared before the House administration. He's the one who gave that IG's report last week. He appeared before the House Administration Committee, which Lofgren chairs to testify about security failures that precipitated the January 6th attack. Lofgren said that the department's Office of Professional Responsibility was reviewing this information uh, and information that a radio transmission to, quote, all outside units attention, unquote, that they should not be, quote, looking for any pro-Trump in the crowd. She added they were, quote, only looking for any anti-Trump. Really? Why? Why is that? Who told them to do that? Bolton said that he had yet to review the reports of that internal investigation into the conduct of about three dozen officers on January 6th, many of which are ongoing in the department's Office of Professional Responsibility, or OPR. 
A committee aide declined to disclose additional details from the investigation, but emphasized that Lofgren's panel, quote, is recently in receipt of new documents and emails related to the January 6th insurrection, including materials which brought to light these issues that the chair asked the uh, inspector general about on uh, Wednesday. The committee is continuing to review those documents and emails and intends to review the relevant recorded audio when it becomes available. Capitol Police official told Politico that the radio communication that Loughran described involved, quote, a Capitol Police command official who told officers simply to be on the lookout for counter-protesters because that is often where the clashes happen between both sides. So that's all that was about. Oh, okay. Now, right. the, uh, although the details are disputed, Lofgren's comments provide insight now into specific concerns about the conduct of Capitol Police themselves on the day of the insurrection. The Capitol Police have acknowledged ongoing investigations, including the fact that Six officers were suspended for their particular actions that day, but they provided no updates since they they began months ago. So for now, this is one of those unsatisfying reports, I'm sorry, uh, without hard answers. But these questions about who, if anyone, told Capitol Police leadership to take the actions that they did or didn't in many cases... These are important questions that remain on the table and that we should not forget about, even with so much else that is concurrently going on in the new administration. So this is another story that we need to sort of bookmark for now. But I think it's an important one as the investigations move forward. So I don't want you to lose track of it. And of course, it's all further reason why we need an overarching commission of some type to pull together all of these various threads. As any villains in this story are certainly benefiting from the chaos and the confusion and the sort of fog of war uh, of all of the different folks trying to figure out what the hell went on. Just as those same villains enjoyed that same chaos and confusion on January 6th during the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol in 200 years. Bookmark it. Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. The Bradcast and The Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. We just can't stop the world, <laughs> no matter how much we might like to try. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And, of course, it's a very special day on the Green News Report. It's Earth Day. Yeah, but, you know, not really. Every day <laughs> is Earth Day, as you say, on our latest Green News Report. It's precisely the sort of target that we need to see. President Biden vows to cut U.S. emissions in half by 2030. European Union and Britain accelerate emissions cuts under the Paris Climate Agreement. Plus, a lot has happened 
since we introduced this resolution two years ago. AOC and Senator Markey reintroduced the Green New Deal. All of those vows, cuts, and reintroductions straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Everything's infrastructure, because right. infrastructure is the word that sells with voters. And if they're successful in doing that, they will ram this through through reconciliation and suddenly, voila, you have the Green New Deal. Voila. Who knew? Someone really ought to tell AOC and Senator Markey, who just reintroduced the actual Green New Deal. Yes, but that's just what they want you to think. A cunning misdirection. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Hey, happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day to you, too. But of course, for us... Every day is Earth Day. Since the first Earth Day in 1970, the planet has warmed by more than one degree Celsius over pre-industrial levels because of humanity's use of fossil fuels. And that, according to a new report by the World Meteorological Organization, is resulting in relentless intensification of the climate emergency. Last year, the world saw record-breaking extreme weather disasters on nearly every continent, along with accelerating sea level rise and ocean acidification. Solving man-made climate change is the focus of President Joe Biden's two-day virtual leader summit on climate, beginning on Earth Day. As we go to air, Biden is set to announce new U.S. emissions targets under the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. That's half. That's In nine years, we'll never make it. (laughs) We can make it, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And that puts us on the path to his goal of net zero emissions by 2050. That's nearly double the target set under the Obama administration, and achieving it would transform the U.S. economy, generating jobs in decarbonizing electricity, transportation, manufacturing, and building construction, with huge increases in renewable energy deployment across the country. You mean putting us all out of work so that we either freeze from the cold or uh, die from the heat. Or put everyone to work, making the U.S. a cleaner and greener place. Oh, well, there's that. In an interview with the Green News Report, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann of Penn State University says Biden's target is in line with what the science indicates is necessary. It's precisely the sort of target that we need to see. Uh, We know that we need to bring down global carbon emissions by a factor of two within the next decade if we're to remain on a course for limiting warming below catastrophic levels, one and a half degrees Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit. And so what Biden has done here is really up the ante. I wonder how Ante feels about it. The details of Biden's plan have not yet been released, but Politico reports the target is designed to be achievable without help from the deeply divided Congress. The new target sends a message that the United States is rejoining the international effort to fight global warming after the climate denial of the Trump administration. This week, the European Union also increased their target, striking a provisional deal on sweeping climate legislation that sets a legally binding target of slashing the EU's net greenhouse gas emissions by 55 percent by 2030 and achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Just like us. The UK also announced a tougher target to cut their emissions 78 percent compared to 1990 levels by 2035. Wow. That would take the UK three quarters of the way to reaching net zero by 2050. 
Here in the U.S., progressive Democrats are also pushing ahead. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York this week reintroduced their Green New Deal framework to ensure that decarbonizing the U.S. economy includes equity and a just transition for working families. And U.S. climate action matters. Climate scientists say that if the world waits until the 2030s to get serious about cutting emissions, then the pace that would be required to meet the Paris Agreement's temperature targets would be very costly and may be technologically impossible. According to Dr. Mann, cutting emissions in half by 2030 is achievable with tools we already have on hand. But setting the target is only the beginning. The real battle now is going to be over the next couple years if the Biden administration can use you know, whatever diplomatic tools it has at its disposal and Democrats can use whatever parliamentary tools they have at their disposal to pass meaningful climate legislation that can complement the executive actions the administration is taking. We wish them all luck. Only the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Happy Earth Day Green News Report. And I remember what it is to be so green thank you very much desi doyen yep very calming we have to get out if only so that you can get to sleep to wake up for day two of the climate (laughs) summit and get some uh, rest beforehand so my uh, thanks to our producer desi doyen to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's show or any other download at any time for free at bradblog.com That's made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you for that. It's greatly appreciated. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. We're alive and free, holding hands on the beach. And I 